This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Until relatively recently, most people who thought about such things believed that Reformed theology, as it was practiced after Calvin and until the modern period, was shot through with rationalism. That is, it put reason ahead of Scripture, that it was spiritually dry and therefore irrelevant to the modern church. There is chiefly one reason why such a view of the classical period of Reformed theology is no longer tenable. The research of Richard A. Muller, P.J. Zonervan Professor of Historical Theology at Calvin Theological Seminary. Richard is the author of several groundbreaking volumes, including Post-Reformation Reform Dogmatics, The Unaccommodated Calvin, After Calvin. He also contributed to Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey, and Protestant Scholasticism, Essays in Reassessment. Some of these titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Richard, and welcome to Office Hours. Well, thank you, Scott. Pleased to be here. You are one of, if not the, leading authorities in the study of Reformed Orthodoxy and Scholasticism, which includes Reformation writings from the 16th century and writers through the 17th century into the 18th century. What are we talking about when we say Reformed Scholasticism? For the the listener who hears the word scholastic may have negative associations with that word. Why? I like to distinguish in the first place between scholasticism and orthodoxy. Now, I've been misread in terms of people saying that I seem to think you can detach them completely. Scholasticism is primarily a method. Method does affect content. But I think my primary interest is in saying that it has not affected the content the way people have claimed. Scholasticism is the age-old academic method that went through a whole series of phases going all the way back into the 12th century. By the time you get to the 16th century, it remains the basic approach in the classroom. And it's a, it's a method of understanding theses, disputing theses, asking questions, dividing the topic. I think the reason it's been despised is there has been a mistaken association between scholasticism and particular philosophies. And then in addition, there's been a Protestant tendency, actually paralleled by a Roman Catholic tendency, to want to separate Protestantism completely from its medieval heritage. On the Roman Catholic side, it is helpful to separate Protestantism from what they would consider to be the great church, the great tradition. On the Protestant side, it was helpful to separate Protestantism from what was viewed as the negative medieval background. The problem with that is that there actually is a very positive medieval background to Protestantism. And that many of the the basic doctrines that we hold, particularly apart from those that were debated in the Reformation, you ask, is the doctrine of God debated? Not particularly. Is the doctrine of the Trinity debated? No. Creation, providence, those doctrines are not debated at all. And there's a great heritage there that belongs to Protestantism as well as to the Roman Catholic Church. The mistake was made in assuming that scholasticism could be identified as the problematic theology of the Middle Ages with which Protestantism broke. And the fact is that although Protestantism did break with what we still consider to be many problematic elements of later medieval theology, it didn't break either with the method or with the larger body of doctrine that came down to us mediated through 
the scholastic or the school teachers, university teachers of the Middle Ages. We usually associate scholasticism with theologians and theology faculties. Were they the only ones who made use no, of these methods? No, it's the general method of the schools that's used in, in philosophy, in law, and even in medicine, so that it's really to be described as a way of apprehending materials, dealing with them cohesively, systematically, defining the parts, and then putting the whole back together. Is it the case that there was one unified monolithic scholastic method, or were there a variety of methods? No. You see some of it if you look at Thomas Aquinas' summa, where a question is asked, objections are made, a pivot is stated that says, no, against these objections, we can move forward, then there'll be a development of the question, and then all the objections have had to be answered. That's a very short form of what went on in medieval schools. There are these long debates called quadlibital debates, where a professor would stand in front of the whole body of the university and propound any number of theses. Objections could come from any one of any faculty, and then the professor would have to defend it. It's really a method of establishment of theoretical statements that then can be elaborated and defended. So when people pick up Thomas's Summa Theologiae and they begin reading it, they're reading, in a sense, a written reflection, not exactly a transcription, but a reflection of the kind of debate and discussion that occurred in the university in the 13th century. That kind of debate and discussion still exists today, right? It may not exist in print, but it does happen in various forums. Yeah, I think that the sense of having academic debate and discourse keeps on going. What's lacking, and that was a feature of this discussion all the way from certainly the 13th century down into the 17th, was the assumption that in order to get a degree, a master's degree, a student would have to stand a disputation and defend theses in front of a group, defending them primarily extemporaneously. That's lost. And there actually is a, a transitional phase in the 18th century where the disputations, so-called, turn into dissertations. If you look at dissertations, they tend to be fairly short. And they tend to be 50 to 100 pages, as opposed to the 300 or so we'd write now. You're listening to, You're office, listening to hours. office Hours. From Westminster Seminary, California. Our academic process of writing a master's thesis and then defending it or writing a doctoral thesis or dissertation at least is in some way an echo oh, yes. of a very ancient process. And so, for example, here when students submit a master's thesis, they have to defend it. Now, they give a written defense or a public defense, which they've prepared in advance, and they read that for about a half an hour. Then they have to sustain questions, which can come, first of all, from the faculty and then from anyone who happens to be attending. And they have to be able to give an account to demonstrate that they've actually done this material, that they understand the literature, the questions, and have thought through the basic issues and literature. Yeah, and that's the, basically the same method. So scholasticism isn't dead. It lives. No, no, it's not dead. But we think of it as far away and foreign, and frequently it gets described in the literature as destructive of genuine theology and piety. In many cases, it's just a drive for clarity on a question. For example, when I teach people today to write scholarly articles and essays, I always say you have to master the state of the question. What has the second-day literature said? What are the basic arguments that are there? If you read Francis Turretin's Institutes of Theology, at the beginning of each topic, he has a state of the question. What are we actually discussing here? A good example is when you ask the question, do human beings have free choice? Turretin will say, we are not discussing the question of whether human beings have free choice in everyday matters. There's no debate. They do. 
we're not discussing the question of whether human beings have free choice to obey the law on a daily basis, or the civil law or the moral law. No, we all agree they do. What we are debating is the specific question, do humans have free choice in matters of salvation, matters of being righteous before God? And the answer we have is no, they don't, and we disagree with Rome and Arminians and the like on that point. The state of the question issue is characteristic of a scholastic understanding, and that is part and parcel of what Turretin was doing. There was a time in Reformation studies where people entered into Reformation studies without having much background in medieval theology, medieval practice, piety. And so they were sort of divorced. They were two different disciplines sort of hermetically sealed from one another in some respects. And so I can imagine someone from that older approach to things, pre-Obermann, let's say, saying to you, but Muller... I read the Institutes, I read Luther, I read Melanchthon, and I don't see any of that in there. Didn't they just dispense with all of that? And you respond by saying? By saying, you haven't been trained to find it. <laughs> it's in there. You just It's in there. Um, and particularly if you read translations. And a good example is the Battles translation of Calvin's Institutes. Battles has a tendency not to engage in a regularized translation of technical terms. So there are places in the Institutes where Calvin says he's developing a locus, which is a technical term for a topic that would reflect the then-dominant way of doing what you might call scholastic exercise in theology. Battles never identifies locus as a technical term, and he sometimes translates it as place or as topic. Calvin sometimes talks about a chapter in the Institutes being a disputation, and he uses the Latin disputatio. Battles never translates it as disputation. So that if you know what the word is and you know what scholasticism consists of, you can find it there. And then, of course, Calvin and Luther are aware of many scholastic distinctions, like the distinction between different kinds of necessity. A necessity of the consequence, which is absolute. Necessity of the consequence, which is a logical necessity. They make those distinctions. They're embedded there. They discuss distinctions, you know, between the sufficiency and the efficiency of Christ's satisfaction. That's a distinction that... Calvin debates himself about it, debates about the question of whether or not it fits with certain texts, but it's a distinction that goes at least as far back as Peter Lombard. So that the elements of the scholastic style method distinctions are there. You simply have to know what to look for. Lombard wrote the great medieval text, the basic text on which virtually everyone gave lectures, whether they lectured all the way through or they gave quadlibital lectures, occasional lectures on this or that book or section of the sentences. But it doesn't look much like Thomas. Nor does, for example, Calvin. And yet, as you say, those are in their own ways academic, scholastic texts. There's just different ways of forming the argument. Let me, let me say about Lombard. Lombard, pre-Thomas, was quite worried about the fact that there are places where the church fathers in Scripture or Scripture and Scripture seem to disagree with one another. And instead of seeing Scripture as self-contradictory, he asked the question, should we be making a distinction here? A classic case of this is the discussion of the divine will, where a lot of moderns, including in the background of the research on Protestant scholasticism, talk about making distinctions concerning the will of God as a rather speculative enterprise, and the Protestants are invested in this speculative discussion of the will of God. Well, if you go back to Lombard and ask why are there such distinctions, Lombard makes the point that Scripture uses the word will equivocally. Sometimes Scripture says, indicates that God's will is going to be fulfilled and must be fulfilled. It's quite absolute. Sometimes Scripture will indicate that God wills something that doesn't occur. Some places Scripture indicates that God wills all people to be saved, and then it's certainly clear, 
certain. If you read the book of Revelation and other places, not all people are being saved. So what does God mean by will? Does Scripture contradict itself, or are there different meanings for the word will? And Lombard says that very clearly. He sets these distinctions forth and then develops articles discussing subtopics. As you move on into the scholastic period, people aren't simply using Lombard. They're commenting on Lombard and adding further objections, replies, further distinctions, further notes. So there's an elaborate development of these topics that reflects this method of stating a point, dividing the topic, making distinctions, and debating it. In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. God the Father created through His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son is the Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. God the Spirit works through the preaching of the Word. For 31 years, Westminster Seminary, California has stood for the truth and reliability of God's Word. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. How did the Reformed and Lutheran Protestants look at the medieval theologians and their method and their theology? quite variously, because the trajectories coming out of the Middle Ages that produce Protestant reformers. You have to recognize that Luther came out of the Augustinian order and had a strongly Augustinian order theology that related quite much to Augustine himself. Luther also had nominalist philosophical overtones. Martin Bootser was a Dominican, and he had a more Dominican, even Thomistic theology in his background. Peter Martyr Vermegli was an Augustinian canon, which is a different order from Luther's, somewhat different Augustinian background, and Vermiglia may actually have been more interested in Gregory of Rimini's theology than Luther, even though Gregory was part of Luther's order. And you go through a list of theologians, and they have various different medieval backgrounds. I think Bullinger may have had a Cistercian background. And they come out of the theologies of these orders, which had theologies almost as different as different denominations today do. So the Reformation background in the Middle Ages, in the first couple generations, is very varied. It is not necessarily nominalist. It can be fairly Thomist. In fact, that's an important point, given that some of these radical orthodoxy folk try to argue the Reformation was a problem because it was basically nominalistic, whereas that's selling short the diversity of the Reformation. When they criticize the schoolmen, particularly Calvin I'm thinking of, he's not necessarily thinking of all medieval theology. He's probably thinking of... He's probably thinking of a few late medieval theologians, and I would say, in terms of what I, I noted in, in a passage in, in one of my books, looking— Go, go ahead. What, which book? You know, oh, it's The Unaccommodated Calvin. Which is in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. <laughs> I mean, there's this, there's this curious fact that Calvin has three levels of comment on the scholastics. He will sometimes say, rather in a rather neutral way, Lombard and the scholastics say this, and he may actually agree. Other times he'll say, Lombard and the scholastics, and maybe sometimes Aquinas say this, and they're wrong. But it's a mild disagreement. And then when he gets in particularly to book three of the Institutes, when he's talking about faith, there you have scholastics are really the, the enemy. They're the problem. Their theology is all wrong. Now, not to pick on somebody, but if you look at the Battles edition, you'll have footnotes to Aquinas in there. If you look up, look up Aquinas on those points, Aquinas is not saying what Calvin is criticizing. You can't believe those footnotes. 
when Calvin translated this into French in 1560, the first two kinds of critique, the, the Latin scholastici becomes French scholastique. The third kind, the Latin scholastici, becomes théologien sorbonique. And he is looking in his bitter comments at a theology in the present that he doesn't like. So these are uh, professional theologians in Paris. In a school. In a school, in the university at the Sorbonne, with whom Calvin is conducting his harshest disagreements. And so when you read Calvin in your Battles edition or your Beverage edition or whatever English text you're reading, you can't simply assume that he's dispensing with everyone who lived no, no. in the Middle Ages, which people tend to assume. Earlier, you, you mentioned a distinction between nominalism and realism. Just in case the listener isn't sure what you mean, can you give a quick definition? The realist, as you might say, modified realist, believes that ideas or forms have a genuine extramental existence. An, an absolute realist, platonic style, would say that the ideas exist beyond the things and that they are the real reality. A Christian realist would say they're in the mind of God. A modified realist, or sometimes called a conceptualist, like, like Aquinas, would say that the primary location of those ideas is in things, although they are in the mind of God. And they are in your mind insofar as you abstract them from things. The nominalist is going to say those ideas are your abstractions from things and basically reduce things to individuals. And there's no real relationship for a nominalist between the name, what we call a thing, and what a thing is. And for a realist, there's a very strong correlation. And so I sometimes tell students, for the realist, we call a thing what we call it because it is what it is. And for the nominalist, you just don't have that connection. Or at least the name that we have in a particular language has a genuine referentiality in the thing. And the nominalist is very much like the modern post-Wittgensteinian who says that language is non-referential and exists in some kind of web of communication that doesn't have any correspondence with things. How on earth, switching horses here for a little bit, how on earth is it that you came to study reformed scholasticism, and orthodoxy. I think that's probably quite accidental. In a Calvinistic sort of way. <laughs> you might have to call it providence. Sure. But from my perspective, you know, it's, it's an incidental thing. Existentially, yes. Existentially. I was studying Reformation with David Steinmetz. I also took at some, Duke. At Duke. I also took some courses from Jill Rate, who was present at Duke, working on Theodore Beza. So I had a kind of natural interest in Beza. And... I came on this literature that talked about the predestinary system of Beza and how Beza distorted the whole thing, brought about Aristotelian scholasticism, turned everything into a causal metaphysic. And I did a little bit of work on Beza and then on William Perkins. And my first inclination, in fact, my first whole dissertation outline was on William Perkins. I never wrote that. Steinmetz encouraged me to go along those lines. I got the sense that, you know, after having read Basil Hall, Calvin Against the Calvinists, that neither Beza nor Perkins really obliged Basil Hall's paradigm. And then I went off for the summer to study at a, an Institute for Reformation Research in St. Louis, and I decided that I should read other people than Beza and Perkins to see if I was reading an exception here. And I read Ursinus, I read Zonchius, I looked at Polanus, and the more I read, the more I said, none of these people oblige this paradigm. None of them are creating a deductive predestinarian system where everything is deduced from the decrees or the doctrine of God. These don't function that way. And this is a widely accepted story. I mean, yeah. prior to 1978, 
there was this almost almost universally accepted story about the nature of the sort of rise of the Reformation and then uh, sort of pinnacle with the magisterial reformers, Luther, Calvin, Melanchthon, and so forth, a little suspicious about Melanchthon. And then after them come these sort of degenerate, rationalist, corrupting influences who resurrected from the dead the scholastic method and rationalist theology and method that sort of corrupted and ruined the Reformation. And it all lay sort of dormant until it was rediscovered by various heroes. And typically in the 20th century, it's Karl Barth who's said to have resurrected it all. So there's this story that's in one version or another widely accepted in Germany and in England and in the United States and all over Europe. And here you're discovering by reading primary sources that, wait a minute, what I'm reading in the sources doesn't really correspond with this story that everyone accepts. How did you feel when you're reading the sources and realizing, wait a minute, everything I've read in the secondary literature is, to one degree or other, significantly false? I was a bit surprised, <laughs> um, to say the least. I particularly thought Basil Hall was giving the documents a very short shrift. I went back after that summer and talked to Steinmetz, and Steinmetz said to me, well, all the literature goes in the other direction. I wonder if you could actually prove this but frankly, if you can, you really do have a dissertation there. And I just set about trying to work it out. I look back on it now, and other scholars have picked up on this. And, and an interesting case is Eric de Boer, who is a Dutch scholar, has actually found records of disputations that took place in Geneva where every week the Genevan pastors would gather together. Somebody would present a set of theses on a biblical text, and they would dispute this and argue the case of the biblical text on their way to doing their sermons. And so the, the, exercise, the scholastic exercise is something that's very present there. And then, of course, the other thing is if you start reading the documents, you find that I would say scholastic is used in the 16th century as an equivalent of academic, so that even today we use academic both ways. You know, we talk about ivory-towered academics who just can't handle reality, which is the negative sense of scholastic, and then we talk about academic standards, which is the positive sense. And that kind of speaking is actually very evident in 16th century Protestant documents. And so you did this research, and that eventually was published as Christ in the Decree, which has been published a couple of times in a couple of different editions. And that, that's the formative work. If somebody wanted to, and I can easily imagine a listener hearing this interview and some of this being very new and somewhat startling for him or for her— and they're thinking, oh, my, this this isn't what I heard in school. This isn't what I've read. This is interesting. Where do I go from here? What, where, where would you recommend that someone start to begin their own investigation and reconsideration of the hitherto dominant story? I would say two things. Number one, start reading the documents with a reasonably open mind and ask what are the documents actually trying to say. Ask yourself the question, are they really if they do put predestination in relative proximity to the doctrine of God, are they really deducing anything from it? Do you recognize there's a difference? And this is, I think, one thing the oldest scholarship did not pay attention to. There is a difference between causal necessity and logical necessity. If God decrees something, you have a causal necessity. But it's not a matter of logic. You can't deduce the results, given that God is a free being. And that there's a sense in which, I mean, Reformed classics will talk this way, that there is a certain kind of contingency, even in God's decrees. William Twist talks this way. On the grounds that the decree is the result of a free will that is in God, 
and God could have willed otherwise. Whenever the result could be otherwise, there is no logical connection between the cause and the effect. Or in other words, you cannot know the effect in the cause. So that you're dealing with causal necessities of sorts, different levels of causality, but you're not dealing with a logical process. And that was a big mistake in the literature. And people who look at this should read it understanding that issue. And then and I do think that the revisionist literature these days has the upper hand. And there are quite a few books. In fact, not just because I'm sitting across from you, Scott, but I would recommend people read the book that you edited with Carl Truman on Protestant Scholasticism. There's a chapter in there by Richard Muller on Beza, and there's a new book out by Willem van Asselt from the Netherlands, which sort of summarizes the state of things, also a good entry point. That's a a very good entry point in terms of getting a broad statement of what is going on in the era of Protestant Scholasticism and Protestant Orthodoxy with good references to who who the people are and good bibliographical work. That's a good place to start. And if you want to get uh, either one of these books, you can get them, again, in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. We'll put links up on the website here so that you can get hold of these titles. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Let's go back to Steinmetz. One of the most interesting things that I, I think I've seen in contemporary scholarship is his own change of mind coming from the old paradigm and then, because of your work, adopting a new paradigm. And what I love about that and the thing that I find so encouraging with which I try to encourage the students is here's an example of genuine intellectual honesty. When confronted with superior arguments based on original sources and a better analysis, David changed his mind because he had published a widely read book, The Reformers in the Wings, in which he had written about Beza. And then he did a second edition. And if you read the preface to the second edition, if memory serves, he says, the publishers won't let me pull this chapter on Beza. I would if I could, because it's all rubbish. You know, Don't believe it. Read Muller. Which, by the way, is what my uh, tutor in the UK told me when I got there. He said, look, there's some value in my work, but it's all been superseded by Muller. Uh, he said, go away, read Muller, and then come back. So there's a a revolution that really begins in the study of Reformed theology in the late 70s that's that's, uh, still going on. And then David sort of seals his new consideration in Protestant scholasticism, essays and reassessment. A lot of people wouldn't do that. No, no. David is an ideal mentor. He has good relations with his students. Just just on a kind of personal note, when you go to an academic conference— you'll often see Steinmetz students of what I would even call multiple generations gathering together and having dinner together. When David is there, we all have dinner with him. He maintains a good relationship with the students. He works with the students. And his main intention is that you become an independent scholar. And in fact, I hope that in my own work, I carry that forward. And you have your own doctoral students that you've been tutoring and teaching. And we have one on our faculty, and we've had at least one other of our graduates, Brian Lee, Joel Kim is a current a student of yours, and uh, Brian Lee did outstanding work on Johannes Coxeus, one of the most important Dutch Reformed, 17th century Reformed theologians, and particularly in the area of covenant theology. One last thing. One of the earlier pieces that you wrote that I think remains a standard and, and is quite profound, and it's a good example of the contemporary relevance of the recovery of interest in Reformed scholasticism, is your engagement with open theism. I've had lots of discussions with open theists, and I say, have you read Muller? 
And often is not, they will say, well, actually, no. And I always tell the students, if you want to understand open theism, go read Muller. I probably have been known to mail them a PDF of that article to say, this is where you want to start. How did that work? Tell us about that process. I came to that article. This is a 1981 article. Oh, yes. It's a long, long time ago on incarnation yeah, and immutability. I came to that after having read some of the open theist pieces where one of the lines in open theism and it's, it's also present someone today like Jürgen Moltmann, where the argument is that the church absorbed this Greek thinking and needed to set it aside. And one of the things that has distressed me about theology, and, and if you consider many open theists to be fairly conservative evangelical types, it isn't as if conservative evangelicals avoid the pitfalls and the problems of liberal theology they merely fall prey to them 50 years after the liberals have given them up. And in this case, what was going on, I thought, was some evangelical theologians were finally finding their world penetrated by Adolf von Harnack and Edwin Hatch, where you have Greek-Hebrew dichotomies, history of the church, the Hellenization of the gospel, ignoring the interpenetration of the cultures long before the time of the New Testament, and ignoring the oddity of saying that it is much more likely that a post-Kantian philosophy can fit with the gospel than an ancient philosophy that developed within reasonable cultural proximity. And that's really what that essay is largely about. It's also about the fallacy of claiming that incarnation demands one to assume a change in the being of God. You know, we've got 1,500 years, certainly, of Christian thinking about the incarnation and that issue has been dealt with, and it's certainly assumed that an eternal God can do a major act in time that doesn't imply an alteration of the divine being, given that God is always there. If memory serves, you even brought to bear the older understanding of the nature of God to the interpretation of Scripture. Towards the end of the article, you make an appeal to Malachi 3. Oh, yes and use that as part of your response to open theism. And, and for the listener who might not be sure what open theism is, it's the theory that in order for God to have a genuine relationship with human beings, it must be the case that he changes in as much as he is in some ways contingent upon us. And so the future, open theism says, at least in the generic version, the future is genuinely open to God so that he cannot know and hasn't decided from all eternity what is to transpire. And so in this article in 1981, Richard engaged this notion, and towards the conclusion of the article, he appeals to Malachi 3. How did that work? The open theists tend to pick on texts that imply change in God and imply God repents or says that God repents. And then they ignore the texts that say God doesn't, like Malachi. I am the Lord, I change not. But the older exegetes tended to do with these texts, traditional exegetes, they would note that the texts that talk about change are probably anthropomorphisms and are dealing with the very real reality of relationship between God and the world, but that most of them pretty obviously have to deal with changes in human beings in their relationship to God. They also note, and I don't know that this carries much exegetical freight today, but it's rather interesting that in the texts that speak of God repenting, the phrase always is that the biblical writer says, and God repented of this. Many of the texts where it says that 
God doesn't change. Let's say in Malachi, God is the speaker saying he doesn't change. And the older exegetes wonder whether you should take it more seriously and literally when God himself is speaking. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.